0: I'm going to do a fair amount of reading this morning from Isaiah, and uh, it wasn't originally on the schedule, and J- uh, Justin said you could, pray, you could preach on whatever you want, and I said that could be dangerous, and uh, I'm going to preach on Isaiah, so I invite you to stand as you're able. I'm going to start first in Isaiah 1 as a backdrop to what we'll be looking at in Isaiah 6. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors... We should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Moving on to Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed." Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please have a seat. Nothing like some really great and positive words to uplift you on a Sunday morning. There's a lot in there. But first, I have some questions for our younger theologians, those of you in our midst who are still wondering what's next. When I was in school was a long time ago. It was well before cell phones. Cell phones weren't even available yet. I know that can be difficult to understand, but it was true. But we still had this idea of comparing ourselves and trying to figure out who we are in this world, what defines us, and uh, what, a, what are the best way to, uh, to judge a person. And, of course, we often judge people on their appearances, how much money they have, so whether they're wearing the right clothes, also if you have the right friends. And that's still the same today. In my day, moon boots were a big thing. you have any idea what a moon boot is? They were these really glorious pieces of footwear, and they looked like ski boots, but we actually wore them to school and to the store, and they were made of foam, and they were wrapped in really colorful vinyl, and those were a big thing. So you had to have the right moon boots in order to be thought as a, as a cool kid, somebody who had your, your priorities straight. <laughs> and then, of course, you had to have the right friends. And the hair. If you've ever looked at hair in the 80s, ladies, I'm so glad that, that long, straight hair is really in right now. But in the 80s... You can look up your parents' pictures in their yearbooks. It was everywhere. And for the guys, hair was longer and had to be feathered just right. Uh, We spent hours on our hair. Uh, Ask your moms what Aquanet is, and I'm sure they'll share that with you. But all these things that are so wrapped up in our appearance, and, and because we want to be successful in life, and so it's not just how you're perceived, but what you want to be. And so you're, you're eager to do things much more quickly than perhaps you should. I remember I wanted to be a hot air balloon pilot since I got my first balloon ride when I was 10, but I had to wait, and waiting was excruciating. I wasn't ready yet. But I always tried to convince our friends to let me fly, and they wouldn't do that. It wasn't time yet. I wanted to be a rock star. I think a lot of us have a fleeting moment with that, but I really wanted to do something with that. But at the time, was not ready? And I didn't have the experience. And it turned out that I was being honest with myself. I really didn't have the talent to do that either. And if you're a young person, you have these thoughts in your head. Who am I going to be when I grow up? Do I look right? Do I sound right? Am I smart enough? When it comes right down to it, all of us struggle with that, even your parents and your grandparents, and we keep trying to do things before we're ready. And while I've shared with you maybe some career ideas or, or things that you want to do with your life, it also comes to our spiritual lives. And so I want you to listen in this sermon for what is needed before All of us, as spiritual beings, as sons and daughters of Christ, before we can move on into ministry, and what we attain to be, and and how we can shed the idea that we're supposed to look like that really smart Bible-based person, that theologian, or that we have to be just like a pastor in order to share the word. So many of these things that dictate in our lives who we are and what we should be, it's just not true. We have to be honest with ourselves. So listen for what those things are. If you have time, I'd like you to draw a picture about what you'd like to be when you were older. What's that one thing that you wish you could be right now, or that thing that you wish you could do right now, but you're not quite ready? Because it's just as important to know when you're ready and you're not ready in ministry. Well, long introduction. But it's important as we frame what we're going to be looking at in Isaiah. And the reason we read Isaiah 1 is it's really the setup for Isaiah 6. And all the chapters leading up, including 6, they all kind of go together and they have this theme. Some historical background. The the book contains the prophecies of Isaiah. He was a real person. He was the son of Amos. And he ministered between about 740 BC all the way through 680 BC. Remember, BC, time goes backwards. For about 20 years, he spoke uh, to both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, to Israel and to Judah. And after Israel's fall to the Assyrians in 722 BC, Isaiah continued to prophesy to Judah. And this is where we find ourselves. The period of this period in Israel's history is told in 2nd Kings, uh, beginning at uh, chapter 15 through 21, and also in 2nd Chronicles 26 to 33. If you'd like to read that later on for some more background, Isaiah was a contemporary of the prophets Hosea and Micah in your Old Testament. And by the time Isaiah came along, the prophets. Elijah, Elisha, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, and Amos, they'd already completed their ministries. And by this time, Israel had been in their promised land for almost 700 years. For the first 400 years, in Canaan, judges ruled Israel. These were spiritual military people. They were practical and political leaders. They were people whom God appointed to judge them, to be over them. But for about 120 years, then they were kings. Of course, you have King Saul and King David and King Solomon. But in 917 BC, Israel had a civil war, and they remained divided into two nations, Israel, the northern country, and Judah, the south up until this time where we have Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. You can see that throughout. There are specific texts in the canonical texts, uh, or in the the synoptics, if you will. Uh, Matthew 13, Matthew 4, and Luke 8, they refer to these specific texts that we're looking at today, Isaiah 1 through 6. And the Gospel of John quotes them in John 12, And, of course, the Apostle Paul, he quoted from Isaiah quite a bit, and you can read in particular in Acts 28 when he references Isaiah. The first six chapters, they provide the tone and the setting for what Isaiah is receiving from God before his throne. Israel has proven not to be the light to all nations that they were called to be, In fact, quite the opposite. They were supposed to be witnessing to the promises of God as the foundation and identity and purpose in your lives. and For the hope, and of course of redemption, but Israel failed miserably. That's what we have in Isaiah 1. This idea that this nation is utterly... Separated from God, not from, by God, but from their own hearts. They separated themselves. That's, that's the definition of hell, isn't it? Separation from God. So here are the chosen people, God's people, and they've separated them from their own creator. Chapter 6 has several parts to it. There's this idea of a preserved remnant, and that's something that we'll dwell on a bit That remnant is an important element throughout all of Scripture. You and I are a remnant, and we represent a remnant. There's also the anointed one. We know in Isaiah as the suffering servant. Isaiah reminds us that God's people are meant to be a reflection of God's heart. These are all things that we know as Christians, but we sometimes forget Fourthly, God's call extends beyond Israel, and it's to the entire world. This is a concept that was lost on the Israelites because they felt that they were the world. They were the only chosen people of God. But God's full intention from the beginning was for his love, grace, and mercy to be in the entire world. And grafted into the Messiah, as we know as Jesus Christ, by the deliverance that only he can bring, and God's people are liberated through the love of God and neighbor, we are engrafted into this, finally becoming the light to all nations. So we're no longer living in 700 B.C., but now we're here in 2021, and these words are still speaking to us, the remnant the people that God has engrafted in to his family. Here are some things to keep in mind. This first point I really want you to, to, if you listen to nothing else in this sermon, I want you to listen to this. Acknowledgement of God's holiness inherently points to your own sin and need for his grace, his love, his mercy, and redemption. Say that again. Acknowledgement of the holiness of God inherently points to your sin. This is why. In our own witness to the Lord and proclamation of his mercy, we proclaim, first and foremost Woe is me! I'm a miserable sinner. It's from that place of genuine humility where God does give us eyes to finally see him for who he is. And we are able to see the king, the Lord of hosts, and acknowledge him as such. Fourthly, in this comes the understanding that you and I, we cannot begin to spiritually and emotionally minister to other people until after we ourselves recognize and confess our own sin and need and dependence on God. That's why I spoke in the, in the children's message, this idea that we, we, have to, we have to know who we are before we know where we're going and whether we can respond. We all want to be good representatives of God's kingdom, but we're all not ready yet because we have some baggage. But if we can be honest with ourselves, if we can be honest with God, it can free you to be exactly who he created you to be. Isaiah 6, some more historical background for Isaiah 6. It's after the 52-year reign of King Uzziah, he died of leprosy in 739 B.C., You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 26. This is the same year that Isaiah started his prophetic works. And so we are given this vision in the very opening words of Isaiah 6, of Isaiah beholding God. I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up the train of his robe. It filled the temple. And this amazing throne room. And around it are are the seraphim. I've tried to think in my mind what what he's describing and what that might look like. I see them as huge beings. They have these six wings and they have a purpose, but they also are messengers of God and they do God's will. The first thing that Isaiah said was, woe is me. He, He recognized that he was in front of the Lord of hosts. He was awe-stricken. The Lord had a message to deliver through Isaiah, to deliver to the nation of Judah, and he expressed a desire for the messenger in verse 8. Isaiah's exclamation was, Here I am, send me it marked the very beginning of his ministry. He was no longer a philosopher. He was no longer a priest. He was now a prophet at the Lord's bidding and what eventually became the the book of, of Isaiah. Now, before Isaiah could say, here I am, choose me, he had a problem and he had to deal with it. In Isaiah 6.5, he describes that Isaiah was made aware of his own unworthiness. And it's those words again, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's dwelling with the people in Judah. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So standing in the presence of God... Isaiah is made powerfully aware of his own weaknesses, his own sin. And he's broken. The same way that Job was broken, it's the same way that Peter was broken, it's the same way that so many servants of God were broken before they could respond to the call to be his voice, his hands, his feet in the wilderness. As soon as he acknowledged that, one of the seraphim took tongs from the altar, took a coal and held it to his lips. I'm not here to explain how all that works. We don't have to understand. It's no more than we can explain what happens in communion or in baptism or in the resurrection. But behold, said the seraphim, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Isaiah didn't ask for that to happen to him. It was given to him because God had plans for him to use him to his glory. Isaiah could not remove his own guilt. That atonement was only possible from the throne of God. And by the declaration of the Lord, saying, You are now clean, you were made righteous in my eyes. I anoint you. It's only after Isaiah was cleansed that he could say, Here I am, choose me. And it's the same thing in our own lives. It's about humility. It's recognizing who we really are, and more importantly, who we're not. This can make us really uncomfortable. We go through lives with these narratives about who we think we are. I honestly thought I was going to be a rock star. I had this narrative that if I if just do this, if I just do that, but the truth of the matter is that really was not in me. It was not my gifting, and I had to be honest with that. So that can happen in your life, in your relationships, in your career, in your schooling, but most importantly in your identity in Christ. Not everybody can be a pastor, not everybody can be a children's minister, not everybody can be a fantastic musician. We all have our calling, but we need to recognize what that is and and what it is not. But that can only be revealed to you when you peel away the layers of the lies that we've told ourselves. I love when God asks, God already knows that Isaiah is going to respond, but he asks this question, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? That plural, us. We could think maybe he's talking to the seraphim, but we know that the triune God was from the beginning, and it's another nod to to the Holy Trinity. Whom will go for us? You think about it, that's our understanding as well. You and I are going, we represent the kingdom of God. We represent God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit by them working in, around, and through us. God made the invitation and was looking for a willing volunteer. The grateful and enthusiastic Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. And then for the rest of his life, Isaiah's career would never be the same. He was serving a God who had forgiven him, who had anointed him, who had called him. But with that came a really unsettling revelation that God gave to him. That's in Isaiah 6 beginning at verse 9. So Isaiah has responded enthusiastically, here I am, send me. And God says, okay, here we go. Here's your assignment. Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and their blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Isaiah, on hearing this, says, "How long, O Lord?" And the Lord continues until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. This is not what Isaiah signed up for. What can God mean by this? How can this happen? So what are the implications of this message to you and me in this 21st century? It defines who we are. Because at the very end of that, it says that the holy seed is its stump. Of course, he's referring to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And by Christ, life, death, and resurrection, we are grafted into this. We are part of that remnant, the people called. And we live in a world that doesn't sound a whole lot different from what God is describing to Isaiah. But we are that remnant. And right now, we're, we're sitting in our masks. And we have been physically separated on and off for the last almost two years. And for those of you sitting here in this room, you kind of feel like a remnant right now. Not everybody that we know and love in this congregation is able to be with us. Can you imagine how the people who are at home, still isolated, must feel? But we're to be strong. I, Jesus taught in parables For those with ears to hear. Not everybody has ears to hear. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to stop. We're supposed to continue going. Remnant is an idea and a reality throughout Scripture. We read about it. The word remnant may not be used specifically, but I remind you that Noah and his family were the remnant saved out of the millions of inhabitants on earth. Just this family in the flood was saved to carry the seed. Only Lot and his daughters were the remnant that survived the destruction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admon, Zebuim. The Apostle Paul in Romans 11, he was referring to 1 Kings 19 when he wrote, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what has God to reply to them? I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. This still doesn't sit well with us. It makes us uncomfortable. It's not the Sunday school Bible story that you want to hear. But God knows what He's doing, and He has this in mind. Zechariah puts it really well, the idea of remnant, but we're not to fear. In Zechariah 13, he writes, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and sheep will be scattered I will turn my hand against the little ones, and the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them, I will say, "They are my people, and they will say, "The Lord is my God." We confess every time we come together. That confession is, is part of that refining. Stripping away the lies and the layers, the things that we hide behind. So that we can be before God to receive his blessing. This is where you and I find strength and we find hope as followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is a call to action because it gives us an identity and a purpose. Our identity is in Christ. I don't care who you are, how much money you have, whether you wear moon boots or not. Your identity is in Christ, and nobody can take that away from you. I think I've shared with you before, Angela and I have had the privilege of walking the grounds of Auschwitz I and II, not once, not twice, but three times. It's devastating. But we've also had the privilege of talking with people who survived the Holocaust. The question invariably comes up, how did you survive? They always answer. They took away my home. They took away my possessions. They took away my family. I was the only one left. But what they could not take away is my identity. My identity in God. That's how I've stayed strong. That's how I've kept going. It's the same for you and me. Nobody can take your identity from you, your identity in Christ. That will remain forever, no matter what your passport says, no matter where you find yourself in life. The Apostle Peter at Pentecost said, repent and be baptized. Christ said, repent and believe. I want to point out, too, that Peter, in that very first sermon of his in Acts 2, referred to the Old Testament and to Isaiah in order to preach his sermon. If you think about it, Peter was speaking to the descendants of the remnant whom Isaiah was originally called by God to reach with the word. And people are fickle, aren't they? They're so forgetful. Angela and I have endeavored to read through the Bible this year, and we're doing a chronological study And we've been pretty good about doing it every day. If not, we have to catch up, but we read it together. And we were going through the trials and tribulations of the Israelites, the very things that we're talking about. And there was one morning we were reading and we said to each other, what is wrong with these people? What part of this don't they get? I mean, God brought them out of Egypt. He protected them with a pillar of fire at night. He provided them with manna from above. He provided water out of a rock. And yet, they still forgot who he was. They walked away and said, what's wrong with these people? And then we started to laugh (laughs) because we're no different. You and I forget. And we keep trying to draw strength from our own experience, from our our own skill set. It's not until you get on your knees and remember who you are, to whom you belong, that strength is returned. So, the story of the Israelites is your story as well. So, what do we do with this? It's a friend of ours named Greg Finke. He's a pastor and a writer. And he has this idea that we follow Jesus on his mission. The idea is is that Jesus is already working in, around, and through you, and more importantly, he's working in, around, and through every person outside of these walls. And all we need to do is to stop and pay attention to what he's already doing. You and I don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to make up what we're supposed to do in talking with people. Jesus is already there working with them. And so the whole idea is that all we have to do is talk to people, not sell them on Jesus, not tell them that they're sinners, But just talk with them. Listen to them. And pretty soon they'll realize that, hmm, you're a believer, and you're just as flawed as I am. Maybe there's something to this Jesus thing. It's the people that you know and like It's the people whom God loves and desires to be drawn to him. What our friend Sid Teske said it's the people whom you long to see in heaven with you. That remnant. Angela and I, we do missions overseas. We serve in former communist nations through our ministry called Sun Network. And we have the privilege of working alongside the remnant who survived the Soviet Union and the remnant that retained their faith through three generations of denial of God. It's pretty inspiring. And so we can say, oh, those poor people. But the more and more we do this, we say we have the same poor people here in the U.S., while we can look at statistics for the former Soviet Union and say you know, that before the Soviet Union there were 90% believers in this particular country and now there's 3%. But we can cite similar statistics here in the U.S. There are people who don't know who they are. There are people who are making it up as they go along. Why do you think there are so many gender identities today? People don't know who they are. So there's clinging to something that, that can be taken away. So while we go overseas to do missions, the missions still need to be done here. It can be both ends. We would love for you to join us. That's something that will forever change you in a very good way. But what you've been called to here and now as the people of City Press is to reach out to the people around you. And, and we say that a lot in church. But you don't have to have you know, the, 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 the call to prayer. You, you don't have not to not call to prayer. That's, that sounds Muslim. But you know, what I mean is by, by bringing people along these seven steps, whatever it is, whatever, whatever formula somebody has come up with to share Christ with somebody, it's not that complicated. All it is is putting yourself out there and paying attention to what God is already doing. They'll ask questions if you don't know the answers. Invite them to a coffee with somebody who might know the answers. But it's most important that we're we're simply out there. But we've got to be honest. If we've learned something from our text today, you're not in a position to minister to somebody spiritually until you know who you are in Christ. doesn't mean that you have to be fixed and have all the answers, but it's important that you recognize that there's still work to be done in you. You are Isaiah before the throne. Pardon me. You must recognize God's sovereignty before you can move forward. And so it begins with this very simple step of, of woe is me. I am a poor, miserable sinner who cannot help myself. I need God. Only then can you truly see God in focus of who he is, not just the idea, but, but truly see him and, and know him before you can say, here I am, send me. So I guess what what I'm saying this morning is, don't be discouraged, but also don't assume that because you've been called by God that you're all ready to go. You've got to be honest. Our confession of sin is something that has to happen on a regular basis. Every time you confess, you're peeling away the layers of those lies. that you're in that position of humility to truly receive what God is telling you and how he's calling you in your, in your ministry. Brothers and sisters, it are, it's our privilege to be part of this fellowship. I look forward to what God is doing in your life. We would love for you to join us overseas, because believe it or not, going overseas to do a mission sometimes gives you those eyes that you don't yet have for seeing what's in your own community. It's funny how that works, but above all, don't neglect coming to worship and being together. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we we don't have all the answers. We're slogging through this together. But while we're in the trenches, Father, we cannot help but look up and cling to you. Bless us, Father, not to our glory, but always to yours. Teach us, ground us in you. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.